The views and opinions expressed on today's show are solely those of the individuals speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the American Solidarity Party. The official party platform can be found under the About Us page on the American Solidarity Party website, solidarity-party.org. You're listening to The Pelican Brief, the official podcast of the American Solidarity Party, a show dedicated to promoting the common good on common ground through common sense. I'm your host, Bill Fleming. My guest today is Ben Schmitz. Ben is the American Solidarity Party's candidate for the Wisconsin State Senate special election on April 6, 2021. If you want to support Ben, you can volunteer for or donate to his campaign. The links are in the show notes for today's episode. Ben, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Bill. Happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with you? Sure. I'm the American Solidarity Party candidate for the state's Wisconsin State Senate District 13 special election. I'm running on a pro-life for the whole life platform and fully support the Solidarity Party platform. Can you define pro-life for the whole life? When I think of pro-life for the whole life, I think that, yes, of course, we have to address important issues like abortion and euthanasia and the death penalty really begins there. And I think that we can't stop there. We have to go and we have to think about what brings people to the point of desperation where they would consider uh, such acts like that that we hope to eradicate in our society. And I think we have to address those problems to help those who are in such desperation. And what was it that motivated you to run and why the American Solidarity Party? I've been involved in the American Solidarity Party since 2016. Um, been a strong supporter since then. I wanted to run to help um, promote the ideals of the Solidarity Party and to help make a difference in Wisconsin's State Senate District 13 and in the in the state. I think that our national conversation and the conversations in our state have been unnecessarily divisive and that there is much common ground and I think someone who isn't doesn't come with the baggage of a major party that is maybe parts of it are participating in this divisive demonizing of an of another party I think coming without that baggage I would be in a position to be able to contribute to a conversation without without bias or without um, so much bias. How has your experience, both as an officer in the National Guard and as a small business owner, prepared you to serve in state government? Yeah, so I'm I own a small business in Sun Prairie, uh, a software consulting firm. I started it a few years ago and grew it to about 15 employees. I've learned a lot about how to be a good leader, how to help others to reach their full potential. And it kind of begins with, first of all, being someone who's worthy of emulating and then helping see others where they are and accepting others for who they are and thinking of each person individually and helping them to um, see for themselves who they can become. In the Wisconsin National Guard, I'm a I'm first lieutenant and I, uh, I'm an infantry officer. I've I've been participated in, in several state active duties, especially recently. I was participating in the 
um, as a National Guard officer in the riots of Madison and Kenosha. And I saw particularly how the, first of all, how our counterparts in the police force were extremely professional and often misunderstood and mistreated or, you know, sort of verbally abused and sometimes physically assaulted um, during that time. And I grew in respect for police officers. Um, at the same time, I saw that our, the way that we police and the way that we, what we expect of our police officers isn't fair. And that in particular around the use of force, there's a great need for clarifying what we see as acceptable for our police officers. I think that if police officers have clear rules around the use of force, then good police officers will know to follow our direction, the direction that we, the people, give our police officers to say, this is how we want you to act in these kinds of situations. Uh, if we clarify rules for the use of force, then police officers, good police officers will know what to do. And if police officers violate the rules for the use of force, then they'll know what the consequences are. Right now, he's judged based on whether or not he feels subjectively the, the feeling of his life being threatened or someone else's life being threatened. And that's not really a sufficient, sufficiently clear rule. If a police officer feels threatened and does something that everyone sees as, hey, that, that wasn't right, then that police officer is prosecuted and even though he, he followed perhaps the rule that he, as he interpreted it, but not as everyone else interpreted it. And I think that if we leave open to interpretation, the rules for the use of force, then we're putting, first of all, police officers at risk because they have to live in fear that, that they may violate the public conscience without really knowing ahead of time what it might be. And I, they, they live in fear that they might be prosecuted for trying to do their job. And at the same time, those who are on the other end of that use of force have to live in fear because they they don't know what what boundaries the police ha have and they might they might fear that they they might be harmed in some way and i think that if the rules were clear then everyone could feel safer knowing that okay this is how a police officer can act and this is what we consider acceptable and this is what we can expect has your experience exposed you to any specific rules or specific policy that you would like to see implemented to address that? Yeah, I'd like to propose legislation that would require changes in the rules for the use of force. Often right now, rules for the use of force are determined by the organization in which that police officer, that law enforcement officer is, is in. In the case of National Guard, the rules for the use of force are determined by National Guard leaders and each police department might have different rules for the use of force. And I, I'd like to get that into writing into law because department rules don't have the same force of law as a state law or even a, a federal law. And what we're talking about is a matter of sometimes a matter of life and death and deserves the full treatment of state law or federal law. And in addition to the issue of, of policing, what other issues are, are of top priority to your district and how do you plan to address them if elected? Some other things that, I, that I'm really passionate about, I think that we also need to, we need to do some, some work on conservation of our natural resources. I think our, our zoning and planning could use some work 
we need to help our um, local authorities, city and town authorities to um, do a good job planning to preserve ag agriculture and to plan out communities that protect our natural resources while also building beautiful communities that have a place for everyone. And then lastly, I'd like to propose legislation that would increase the availability of private school vouchers so that all parents can choose where their kids can go to school. I'd like to uh, to pivot to the politics. Um, we live in a country with an electoral system that poses incredible challenges for third-party candidates. That's obviously a smaller hurdle to jump in more local races, but I'm curious to hear what your strategy is to break through that and what you see as your path to victory. The number one obstacle for a Solidarity Party candidate or any third-party candidate is the perception that candidate cannot win. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts. If someone says, oh, a third-party candidate can't win, then they, they, they won't do, even if they might support that person, they might, not, they might not vote for that person or they might not donate thinking it's not possible. And this is, this is a lie. There aren't that many candidates on the ballot. Currently in this race, after the pr primary, there, there will be only four candidates on the ballot. So it's not like they're choosing from a million others who might be just as good. There, there are really only four choices. And if voters choose based on their conscience, then the right person will be elected to office. Uh, I believe that. And I think that the, if voters choose based on fear, fear that some other party might win and vote just merely for the, the lesser of two evils, then they will find that they vote for someone who perhaps they do see as a proponent of evil. And is, is that really what you want for our country? Is, is that really what you want a candidate who you see as a lesser evil? I think that if everyone voted their conscience and did their part, then you would see the right candidates making it into office. So if someone listening to this is in that position and is feeling pressured to vote a specific way to keep a certain candidate out of office, what does the American Solidarity Party offer to that individual or maybe somebody who is considering not voting at all? Well, first of all, the, the Solidarity Party is it's a it's a place where voters can bring their a party where voters can bring their issues that they care about and be first of all, be listened to. Um, the Solidarity Party has, we have an atmosphere here in the Solidarity Party that we're open to ideas. We have, we have opinions and we have research to back up our opinions, and, but we have open discussion, open dialogue. And commonly in our current political culture, we find that expressing your one's opinion is usually only met with violence or name calling or essentially just not listened to. People might say that if you have that, if you don't share my opinion, you're a bigot. Or if you don't share my opinion, you're, you're a deplorable. Or if you don't share my opinion, you're an evil person. And in the Solidarity Party, every, every conversation begins with the understanding that every person has a voice that deserves to be heard. And every person has an opinion that deserves to be listened to for the mere fact that, that you're a person, you have a mind of your own and the opinions that you have, yeah, I might disagree with them. They might be true. They might be false. They might be true in some way, but 
I believe that they're honest opinions. I'm going to assume of you that your opinion is an is honestly your opinion, and that I think that if we listen to each other and we dialogue together, we might find that we have a lot more in common than we first thought. Barack Obama won Wisconsin in 2012, and then in 2016, the state went to Donald Trump. Uh, how do you win over the Obama to Trump voter who may not feel a particular loyalty to a particular party, but is coming at it from from more of a uh, populist or anti-establishment perspective? If you feel that the major parties have failed us and that you don't you don't feel that the Democrats or the Republicans have all the right answers, then you're, you're starting in the right place. You can look in the Solidarity Party for people who will listen, people who will hear, hear what you have to say, and where party loyalty isn't everything. You know, uh, our opinions, we believe we're, anyone who's in the Solidarity Party, we're here because we really believe in solidarity between Americans. We believe that we have a duty to help our neighbor. We have a duty to preserve our freedoms, to be fiscally responsible, and to protect those who are most vulnerable. And I think that almost every American can agree with this. If we avoid the demonization of anyone who disagrees with us, that the fear-mongering that is used by those in power of every stripe, that it can't have an effect on us because we're not subject to fear. So we we vote based on our conscience. We vote, vote based on what we believe in. And if that's you, then you have a place with the Solidarity Party. Before we, we conclude, I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak directly to the voters in the 13th District. If you had the opportunity to speak with each of them one-on-one, what would you want them to know? First, I'd want them to know that I'm that I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear about the difficulties that they've faced, both in their society and even personally. And I'd like to see, I'd like to ask them, how can I, as a senator, how can I help you in your community? And what can I do to make your your community a more just and um, a more livable community for you and for your family and for those around you that you see. If people like what they heard today, how can they get involved and help support the campaign? First of all, people can go to my website, schmitzforstatesenate.com. They can look deeper into the issues that I've talked about today. They can donate, they can volunteer, and of course, they can vote for me. All right. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Bill. One common refrain that comes up often when speaking with individuals who are running for office on a third-party ticket or supporting a third-party candidate is the way in which partisans will use fear to try to ensure that voters toe the party line of the major party whom they feel is the lesser evil. Many Americans either explicitly or implicitly think of politics as inherently partisan, Politics becomes a decision between only two options, one which is bad, and one which is either slightly less bad, or maybe marginally good. This makes their political lives and political decisions easier for them. It allows them to have a quick answer, so that politics does not consume too much of their already all-too-busy lives.
One of the most concerning things that I have heard from people who are either excited or relieved that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election is that we can return to normal. They look at Joe Biden and see someone who makes them comfortable. They see a person who will lead a boring administration and allow them to forget about politics. The problem is that normal was not working. A return to normal is a return to 40 years of bad policy. One of the good things about Donald Trump's presidency, at least in my opinion, is that he lived under a microscope. Many people were often upset by things that he did and said, whether justly or unjustly, depending on the incident you're talking about. But there was a level of accountability there. We were not lulled into a false sense of security. We could not ignore his actions, and he knew that. We've seen what happens when a president knows they aren't being scrutinized. Politics becomes performative. You say one thing in front of the cameras and while at the podiums, and do another when the door closes behind you. You show up to Flint, Michigan and drink a glass of water to calm people's fears rather than replacing the damaged pipes that were causing lead to leach into the water in the first place. The election is not the end. It is the beginning. As of this week, we have a new president, and we will need to hold him accountable, preferably to the same degree that we did with Trump. If we don't, you can be assured that we will get more of the same. We will get more of the corporate-friendly economic policy that is strangling the working class, while our tax dollars are spent in overseas conflicts that have little to do with our nation's safety and security. Ultimately, the Democrats and Republicans want the same thing from you. They want you to show up on Election Day and vote, and then go home and forget they exist for four years while they line their pockets in the pockets of their friends. They want you to think that their opponents treat immigrants worse than they do, or care about the unborn less than they do, when the truth is neither of them care about either of those groups of people. They use real human suffering to advance talking points and convince us that they aren't all in the same club, that the other side really is the boogeyman that they pretend they are. So what do we do about it? We need to make noise. We need to be loud enough that they cannot ignore us, and we need to demand action from the media, from the legislators, and anyone else we can think of with influence. We need to be clear and consistent that if our president or legislators do not represent our interests, that we are willing to withhold our vote from them. Even if that means voting for the xenophobic boogeyman, who does not really exist, or the socialist boogeyman, who also does not exist, a third-party candidate, or not voting at all. Throughout the last two years, I've made it a habit of calling Senator Perdue's office. I spoke routinely with the receptionist in his office and told her how much I was disappointed with specific legislative decisions he made and his lack of willingness to publicly address certain issues. Eventually, I started opening my conversations with, let Senator Perdue know that if he wants me to vote for him in 2020, he better, and I would make my request. Needless to say, he let me down every time, and I did not vote for him. I have no idea how many others called in like I did, but if more of us had, David Perdue might be sitting at home regretting his decisions right now. That is, if he believed that his inaction cost him his job. The truth is that David Perdue probably doesn't believe that his actions had anything to do with his electoral loss, and the sad reality is that he's probably right. The American populace generally does not vote based on what candidates do or don't do right. They vote based on a perceived threat. A threat that, while not totally imaginary, does not exist in reality quite the same way it does in their heads. The skill that most politicians have is instilling and amplifying fear in the minds of their constituents. We as a society need to break from this mold. 
We need to learn that the threats that we are sold are not nearly as severe as we are conditioned to believe, and that the vast majority of our current politicians are motivated by money and power rather than altruism. If the current slate of politicians are solely motivated by nothing more than self-interest, we can and must make sure we use their self-interest to our advantage and the advantage of the American people as a whole. The only way that you will get them to act is to threaten their position of influence and cause them to believe that their future in politics is uncertain. American democracy will never be healthy as long as a senator who has a sub-20% approval rating more often than he does not is able to win re-election with nearly 60% of the vote, as Mitch McConnell did back in November. The surest way to correct this is to resist the urge to become complacent. We must remain vigilant now more than ever. Many people rightly point out the corrupting influence of money in our politics, but they consistently neglect to acknowledge our complacency and our willingness to accept subpar results, which makes us complicit. Obtaining results begins at the ballot box. If you want your politicians to be accountable to you, you must, and I mean must, be willing to not vote for them. That doesn't mean that you need to support the other major party candidate. You can always sit out a race if you need to, but no candidate is going to deliver for you if they know that they have your vote before they say or do anything. All that tells them is that they can take your vote for granted because you're a pushover. It tells them their campaign of fear and demonization has worked and that they've got you captive. Stockholm Syndrome has taken hold and there's nothing that they can do that will cause you to defect. And that is where they want you. That is how they want you to feel. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share this podcast with your friends and family and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Our next episode will be released on February 1st. Tune in to hear my conversation with David Bailey on creating cultural artifacts.